What a privilege it is to serve my King here at Disciples Church. What a joy it was to preach the first service, and I am equally, if not more, excited to preach the second. Today's sermon is titled, Our Position, and the text from which I'll be preaching is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Your elders and their wives have hospitably welcomed me into their homes, each of them, all three families. They have collectively poured into me over what has been a rather difficult season for me. And just last night, we spent several hours at Rob and Lori's house in their backyard, and Joshua has driven to and from Fresno several times just for me. Matthew regularly checks in on me and encourages me. He even called me on his birthday this past week. And under their wing, I've witnessed three men, and I know that there are more beyond them here, who long viciously to know, lead, feed, and protect you. They wrestle through doctrine and vision. They labor in prayer. They love Christ. And they want the same for you. The new building, the Reformation, Bakersfield, the Gospel Coalition, Shepherds Conference, our time spent with Ian Hamilton this past weekend, it's all to honor Christ by equipping you, either directly or indirectly. I only hope to preach the grace that those men personify. Now, as you may know, I resigned from a church in late November. Now, this massive heartache created an identity crisis for me. Who am I outside of pastoral ministry? That's what I've been asking myself. And I found that my calling had become an idol. It had become something I worshipped, something I feared I couldn't live without. Now, my identity was idolatrously wrapped up in ministry. Yours, however, may be marriage, may be parenthood, family in general, position, education, entertainment, comfort, money, Security, sex, alcohol, drugs, relationships, goals, or hobbies? None of those identities last. You may not be a parent when the sun sets tonight. You may not have a family. You may not have your job. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 preaches that our identity is either in Christ or it's outside Christ. That's it. That is all that matters. And it is glory in Christ, but it is horror outside him. Let's pray that God would speak through his word today. Father in heaven, we approach you Father, I stand in your Son, confident. And I ask that you would stoke worship in your people this morning. And Father, I plead as a man who is incapable of doing anything, if there's anyone here today who is yet to know all the wonders of of being in Christ Jesus, would you make them alive together with him? Save them. I pray that so that we may also, all all of us, worship together the son whom you love. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Two points. Our past plight and our permanent position. 
our past plight we find in verses 1 through 3, our permanent position we see through the remainder of the section, verses 4 to 10. Look with me at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. (laughs) Once upon a time, you were dead. Believer, smell the stench of your previous death. These words are written to comfort you. They're a launch pad for radical thanksgiving. You will relish your current position if you realize your past plight. Paul says we were dead. We were once dead. It's no longer true for the Christian, but it was once true. Now let these suffocating words breathe life into you. We were born dead, spiritually stillborn. We were conceived corpses, sinful sons of Adam and disobedient daughters of Eve, casualties in the womb of darkness, fallen in eternity, lost in the netherworld of rebellion, supernaturally lifeless, powerless to save ourselves, unresponsive to God, incapable of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Our first ancestors bequeathed to us condemnation. We inherited their guilt and shame. Our mothers, all of us, delivered us on death row. We were born into the birth pool of execution. You entered this world with insurmountable debt. I owed my life the moment I received it. Notice in verse 1 that our spiritual death was active. In the trespasses and sins, plural, Adam's original sin was imputed to me, so I emerged from the womb sinning. My ledger drips red with countless trespasses and sins. I sin in the plural. You trespass by the legion, and our violations against God's law are beyond number. I'm not a sinner because I sin, I sin because I'm a sinner. You do not become spiritually dead because you sinned. You sin because you were spiritually dead or you used to sin because you were spiritually dead. We were dead in, notice that, in the trespasses and sins. The Holy One caught us in the act. Blood was on our hands He would have been just to shoot on sight. Verses 1 to 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were literally the walking dead. Sin zombies mindlessly chasing our appetites. You did what you craved, whatever you felt like doing. We walked in our trespasses and sins. We strutted in our sin, proud of it. We wore it as fashion. We arrogantly paraded it as a lifestyle. We boasted in our defiance. We were, Paul says, following the course of this world. Like dead fish, we floated downstream, the path of least resistance, gliding with the flow of culture, riding the wave of popular opinion, and surfing the stream of style. You see, the lost believe and do whatever their friends believe and do. Our past plight was pathetic. It's pathetic. Worse, it was demonic. Look with me. Paul continues, we were following the prince of the power of the air. 
we unknowingly advanced Satan's agenda. We pledged allegiance to the God of this world, as he's called in 2 Corinthians 4, and the ruler of this world, as Jesus calls him in John 12. Our enemy's influence is so pervasive in this world, he's called the prince of the power of the air. He controls the spiritual atmosphere, the spiritual climate. It's not romance or music in the evening breeze. It's Satan. You and I were under his hypnotic spell. He is prince. He's the bloodthirsty chief, the corrupt dictator, the abusive master, the dark lord. He is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is the wind of wickedness that has polluted this planet. He is the spirit of our age. We were his stolen property, obstinate under his tyranny. Sons and daughters of disobedience, we rejected Christ and we refused grace. The devil tugged us like puppets, a maniacal marionette pulling on the strings of the political arena. He operates the swarm of secularism with a horde mentality, and he is the king bee. 1 John 5.19 puts it in graphic terms. John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Born dead, you and I were cradled by this twisted demon. You remember what John said, or I'm sorry, what Jesus said in John 8? You are of your father, the devil. Chilling words. We were, verse 3, sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There are no exceptions. Paul includes himself before Christ. Every man, woman, and child lived for self. We were robots of rebellion, slaves to sin, in bondage to our body. We served our lusts, nursed our longings, exercised our cravings, and practiced our yearnings. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We satisfied our bodies every wish and entertained our minds every thought. As Judges says, at the worst time in Israel's history, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We always let our conscience be our guide. We did follow our heart. Thank you, Disney. Do you see? Following Satan is not a matter of pentagrams and cat sacrifices. Following Satan is simply a matter of self-gratification. We walked in Satan's line as we did what we wanted. Satan preaches, live by how you feel. Don't you want to be like God? Doesn't the fruit look good to you? He's never bringing worship to himself. He's saying, worship yourself. Thus, we were by nature children of wrath. Jesus taught it best. You know John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in the entire Bible. But do you know John 3.17 and 18? Not a lot of people quote that one. I'm going to be reading from the YLT, which says, God did not send his son to the world that he may judge the world. Sounds good like good news. But that the world may be saved through him. Even better news. He who is believing in him is not judged. But he who is not believing is judged already. Because... He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus didn't judge the world because the world is already judged. 
What is the one thing you must do to go to hell? Nothing. You don't have to do anything to go to hell. You and I were born hellbound. That's where we were going. You have to enter by the narrow gate. That's something you have to do if you want to escape hell. You have to trust in Christ. You and I lived by how we felt. We carried out our own will. We behaved as our own God. And consequently, you lived under God's correct, proper, and unquestionably appropriate rage. During every second that you and I enjoyed sunlight, food, family, friends, education, work, and vacation, all of creation, though we were blind and deaf to it, was shouting to us God's verdict. Cursed, guilty, damned, doomed. Our natural relationship to God was hostility and violence, just like the rest of mankind. Consider those words. What sober words, church. Consider those words. Your fate was identical to that of Judas Iscariot, Nero, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and the rest of mankind. Without any qualification, any clarification, or any distinction whatsoever. Dear Christian, Hear Satan's icy breath whisper how unworthy you are. Welcome his charge against you. Let him hurl his accusations and then answer him with verse four. But God, but God, here we find our permanent position. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Oh, your position. Oh, if you are in Christ, your position in Christ is permanent entirely because God is rich in mercy and great in love. Listen carefully, dear saint. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God loved me even before he saved me? Yes. Why do you think he saved you? Do you think or did you think God began to love you after he saved you? Now, certainly, there is a particular love that God has for his children who are redeemed. But I want us to camp out here on God's nature. He is by nature rich in mercy. You remember back in Exodus thirty-three eighteen to 19, Moses said to God, show me, please, please, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, or the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then in the next chapter, he continues, Yahweh passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is wealthy in kindness for those in serious need. Listen, if you feel that my description, that Paul's description, that God's description of you is that you are spiritually dead, then listen to these words. It thrills God 
to remove wrath from those who repent. It thrills him. To what extent does God mercifully forgive sin, you might ask? Well, let me answer with the lyrics from Morgan Cryer's famous song. I don't know when it was written. As I told first service, I only know that it was a white man with an afro, so it was probably in the 80s sometime. Listen to these words. I cried out for mercy back then. I plead the blood of Jesus. I begged him to forgive my sin. It just won't go away. So I wept again. Lord, wash my sin. But this is all he'd say. What sin? What sin? That's as far away as the east is from the west. What sin? What sin? It was gone the very minute you confessed, buried in the sea of forgetfulness. There is an opulent surplus of undeserved compassion in God. He is rich in mercy. He has a monopoly on mercy. All mercy is God's mercy, and his love is great. He places extraordinary value on wretched sinners like you and I, worthless sinners like me. Zephaniah 3.16 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God loves you enthusiastically. But how long has he loved me, you ask? Well, how long has the eternal God been around? How long has the omniscient God known he would save you? Tell me, how long has God loved you? There never was a time when God didn't love you who are in Christ. His love for you cannot end because it never began. His love for you is omnidirectionally everlasting. God's love for you is prehistoric. His, it's beginning less. It's eternal and it's unconditional. Look at verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Now listen again in context and follow the Holy Spirit's mind. You're following the mind of God as you read his word. Have you ever thought about that? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's all grace. It's all undeserved. You did nothing to motivate God's mercy towards you. You were dead. Yet he loved you and made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How can the redeemed soul question God's love? How in the world do you and I possibly manage to question his love? It's insane. John Owen said, it is the highest in kindness that a truly born-again saint can commit against the Father's heart is to doubt that he loves us. The mechanic spends all his money, time, and energy restoring an old clunker to its cherry condition. Does he throw it away in anger after a scratch or a flat tire? Dr. Frankenstein. 
devotes his whole life's work to creating a living person from graveyard scraps. Does he destroy his monster after it asks for a dental cleaning? And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. You think his love cannot bear your tiny little daily failures? (laughs) I struggle the same way. And yet the gospel preaches. Romans 5, 8 through 11. Romans 5, 8 through 11. Thank God Romans 5, 8 through 11 is in the Bible. God shows his love. God shows his love for us. In that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Now that that's done, now that that's happened, now that that's true for you, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son to God, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, Paul says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If God loved you while you were dead sinners and rotten enemies, How must he love you now that you are his living, breathing children? Imperfect, yes. But you do love him, don't you? Do you love him? What makes you question his love for you then? But I sinned yesterday, Sam. I sinned this morning. I sinned while you were preaching. Is he not able to endure these petty little failures? And sin is not little, as Pastor Matt prayed. But boy, it's little and compared to our previous spiritual deadness. Do you feel the insanity of our fear that he would throw away his redeemed, his choices, possessions, his inheritance? Rejoice with me, church, and prepare for takeoff. We're just getting started. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Please tell me that you heard the prepositions there because they are so important. Learn grammar so that you can appreciate scripture. Prepositions. Raised with him. Seated with him. In Christ How careful is Paul to distinguish our exaltation and enthronement from that of Christ? Did he take any care whatsoever? No, they're the same. It seems blasphemous. It would be heresy if it wasn't written here in black and white. Romans 8, 16 to 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, not children of wrath any longer, children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. You get what God has. You inherit what God owns. Uh, What is that? Heirs of God and fellow heirs 
with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Just how glorious is our future life? The father quickly responds, I have promised, I have promised you Christological treatment. I plan to give you, I plan to treat you for eternity the same exact way I treat my son. That is how scandalous the gospel is. Now stay with me. This is far more than just positional righteousness. God is not just throwing a stamp on us saying, yeah, you're good. Not much, you know, not much has changed. You're just, you got the stamp. You're going to make it to heaven. Golden ticket, chili, chili Wonka, Charlie Wonka, whatever. Willy Wonka, Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. I'm going to write a new book, Chili Wonka. A spicy chocolate factory. This is a spiritual reality. This is not just positional righteousness. Okay, Paul's speaking of reality. You are exalted with Christ. You are enthroned with Christ. Heaven is your home in Christ. His being there secures my being there. His being there secures your being there. This is true and certain Now, it cannot be undone. Raised with Christ, seated with Christ. As long as he is raised, you are raised. As long as he is seated, you are seated. Tell me, dear Christian, when will he ever be brought low? Tell me, dear saint, when will he ever be dethroned? Our position is permanently fixed where Christ stands this very instant. You are as secure in God as Christ, his beloved son, is secure. Augustus' top lady, a Welsh hymn writer, wrote this hymn. And these words have haunted me. They've overtaken me the last few weeks. My name, from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Okay, if the chill didn't run up your spine at the end there, let me repeat those words. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified saints in heaven. How many of you have loved ones who are currently in glory, have died to go and be with the Lord? They are happier than you right now, but their position is no more secure. You and I may be less happy right now than those in paradise, obviously. But we are no less confident than we shall be there on March 11th, 2118. I'm assuming we're all going to be dead by then. Or Christ will have returned. Now, why did God love us so much? Why has he been so immodest and scandalous in his love for us? You ever thought about that? God's immodest in his love for us. Why has he guaranteed 
such status and privilege to those who fail and shame and dishonor him every day. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, age after age after age, millions after billions after trillions of years, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I actually, I I wrote the ESV Crossway publishers and I said, yeah, there must be a misprint here because this is getting ridiculous. (laughs) This is outrageous. God has done these already outstanding otherworldly things only to guarantee more? It's as if God will playfully invent unthinkable new delights to shower us forever. This is how good I am. Oh, you thought that was good. This is how good I am. This is how much I love you. Oh, you thought that was neat. This is how much I love you. Paul doesn't say, notice this, Paul doesn't say you and I cannot measure the, me- the riches of God's grace. Paul says the riches of God's grace cannot be measured. His wealth of grace is hyperbolo. It's a Greek word. Thrown beyond the walls of measurement. Extreme, supreme, over the top. Verse 8. Why? Because by grace you have been saved through faith. It's such a small word. And yet it opens up to an infinite chasm of greatness in God. Grace. It's just undeserved. I mean, there's just no reason other than God glorifying himself, which is a huge reason. It's a reason for everything. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. I'm going to invite and urge you, if you are not in Christ, if you are not in Christ, I ask you this moment, do you want him? Do you want him? All you must do is trust his word for it. Believe him and he's yours. Do it now. Oh, that you would repent and believe now. That all of us, again, would repent and believe now. That if ever we've ever been saved, this was the day. Christian, God saved you by grace to show you more and more grace forever. I recently taught through John 1 and verse 16 just blew my mind. It says, from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You know, Jews compiled words onto themselves to emphasize. So the Holy of Holies was the holiest place. And the Song of Songs was like the best song. And grace upon grace is the graciest grace. (laughs) Extravagant, excessive, dare we say, exaggerative grace. Literally, the Greek says grace anti-grace, or grace instead of grace. How can we receive grace instead of grace? What in the world does that even mean? Ah, Well, as God gives you grace and it transforms you and reigns over you, God replaces the old grace with new grace. And grace is heaped upon grace. Grace in exchange for more. Grace piled on, folded on, layered on. Grace in place of grace. Grace after grace. Grace upon grace. Grace instead of grace. Grace on behalf of grace. Grace replaced by grace. God's permanent position toward you is to continually dump grace and grace and more grace onto you. It's grace because of grace. It's grace for grace's sake. 
Christ Jesus is the endless fountain of grace, the inexhaustible, inextinguishable source of all grace. He is sheer grace overflowing, overwhelming, and overexceeding any and all limitations that you and I may put on him in our sinful minds. You may think, oh, there must be boundaries to his grace. His grace must have restrictions. And Paul says, no. John says, not so. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Spurgeon, my hero from church history, says, of his fullness, we all have received, and we hope to receive from it again tonight, for it is still his fullness. There is never a trace of declining in him. It was fullness when the first sinner came to him, and it's fullness still. It will be fullness to the very end. And grace for grace, we get Grace to reach out to another grace. Each grace becoming a stepping stone to something higher. The stepping stones of the living Christ lead upwards. Grace for grace, grace upon grace, until grace is crowned with glory. That's your standing before God. That is our position. Have you ever found the limits to God's grace yet? If you have, why the heck are you here? You haven't. Why not? Because from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, to everyone who has, will more be given and he will have in abundance. Though my sins are many, his grace is more. There is more grace in him than there is sin in me. Though I am a great sinner, Christ is an even greater Savior. So Spurgeon says again, Jesus is to me all grace and no wrath, all truth and no falsehood, and of truth and grace he is full, infinitely full. If we could tear a hole into heaven and hear from the saints in paradise, they would undoubtedly shout with highest happiness from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You know, Adam wore the fall of humanity on his shoulders. You ever think about that? Like he had generations of kids, you know, and grandkids and great grandkids and stuff that were alive during his lifetime. He wore the fall, every one of them, on his shoulders. Noah got drunk and embarrassed himself after, right after his salvation from the flood. David, God's king in Israel and author of many scriptures, stole another man's wife and had that man killed. They all stand in glory. And we shout through our hole that we've tore into heaven, how did you recover from your shame and your guilt and your failures. And what do they shout in response? Adam, Noah, David, and all the other sinners. Grace upon grace. Back to Ephesians 2.8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. As Pastor Joshua said at the Five Conference, I thought he defined it so well, grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. So we know, all of us know, grace by definition is a gift. But has it ever occurred to you that faith is a gift of God? That your believing in Christ is a gift God has given you? That it is, as verse 9 says, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. You and I, we cannot point to something and say, I did that. Except sin. No decision, no prayer, no tears of repentance are our own doing. Jonathan Edwards said, and I love to echo him as much as often, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. You are, as Romans 11.6 says, chosen by grace, 
But if it is by grace, Paul says, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We add nothing to God's work. You cannot raise your position. You cannot lower your position. You cannot increase God's love for you. You cannot decrease his love for you. Your standing before God is maximal and it is unconditional. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May this final verse, I'm going to spend just a couple minutes in conclusion. That means perk your ears. That, mean, that does mean tune out. We're almost to lunch. Let me whet your appetite. May verse 10 be the crescendo to our worship. And may it be the comfort in our work. You are God's poetry. Now, Craig, Dina, Claire, and Emma in the back there, my, my family here, uh, they probably hear me say that and go, oh, Sam's being sappy. You're God's poetry. How lovely. No, literally, Paul says, we are God's poetry. When he says we are his workmanship, he literally says we are God's poema or his poems. The great care God took designing you, designing your salvation, far exceeds the genius, inspiration, strategy, and perspiration it required to build the seven ancient wonders in our human history. You are God's masterpiece, his crown jewel, his finest work, his magnum opus, his monumental achievement, his showpiece, his greatest creation. And yet you respond to those words and say, then why don't I feel like it? Why am I so painfully aware of my imperfections? And why do I see everyone else's imperfections? Why is the church so messed up for his poems. I remember some poems are kind of messed up. (laughs) Be encouraged by the words of Steve Parks. From a human perspective, the church looks like a complete mess. Does it not? You guys have a good church here. And I'm sure there are times when you feel like it's just a mess. But when you view the church from God's perspective, she is without spot or wrinkle. Why, Steve Park says. Why? Because of the shed blood of the Savior. Try to see the church that way. We are divine poems by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. God created you in Christ Jesus. Okay, you, you were not only dead, you were spiritually non-existent. Church, glory over your preeminent position in Christ and be humble. You have no existence outside of Christ. Colossians 3.3 3 says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Oh, until that day, until that day, we have an extraordinary purpose as those resurrected in and enthroned with Christ. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You are alive and free to think, feel, and do, and speak what pleases God and broadcasts his fame to a dying world. Church, you are unlike every other people on the planet. You alone are capable of doing what God calls good. You and only you can work for your employer 
as unto the Lord. Only you can perform and create and parent and obey and love and listen and serve and die by faith in the Son of God and for his glory. Only you. Remember, all this is from God's sovereign grace. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Before Genesis 1-1, before the creation of the world, God had already determined all that you would do for him. Let that comfort you. Let that propel you. Let it excite you and fuel you and motivate you and energize you and flood you with all zeal. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You will walk in the great things he has planned for you. That is his grace to you. That is his promise to you. Zechariah 4, 6 through 7 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Grace, grace to it, people respond. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in a time of need. As those raised and seated with Christ, it would be a shame if we didn't spend every waking moment reclining against his throne in constant conversation with our King. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would these things be true in our lives. I pray, Father, that you have encouraged your flock, saved the loss, and glorified your great name. We pray these things in your son's awesome and powerful name. Amen.